Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, our guest is Bill Abrams. He is both a friend and a former colleague of mine from the New York Times, and we both worked there together back in the in the early 2000s, after leaving the Times, was the president of Trickle Up, the international development organization, for 16 years. He also, before that, as I mentioned, was not only at the Times, but had a career in journalism at the executive level at the New York Times, at the Wall Street Journal, and at ABC News. We will talk about his career in journalism and in nonprofit advocacy for the most vulnerable people. But first and foremost, welcome to The Caring Economy, Bill Abrams. Thanks, Toby. Good to see you, and this is a, a very interesting program you have. I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. So let's start with the past 16 years, really, where you were really what I first thought was uh, an interesting pivot for you, but maybe this is something in your backstory about how you got into international development. First, give us the overview of Bill Abrams, how you got where you got from like where you're born, where you were raised. Oh, gosh. Well, I was born in St. Louis. Tufts University as an undergraduate, went to Columbia Journalism School and Business School, uh, started work at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it was really my first job and had the privilege of working for three world-class news organizations, Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and ABC News. Now, about 17 years ago, uh, I had an opportunity for a dramatic career pivot. Uh, the New York Times, I was running a business that was making documentaries for, for television, for cable TV and public TV. We did great work, have a shelf full of awards. Financially speaking, it was not such a pretty picture and the Times wisely decided to get out of the television business at that time. And a couple of days later, after I got this news, a friend called who runs a homeless organization here in the city, uh, Bowery Residence Committee, BRC. Mm -hmm. And he said, sorry to hear about your job at the Times. Have you ever thought about going into the nonprofit sector? I said, no, I hadn't. I'd done my volunteer bit here and there. And, and, you know, as I look back over my life or my career, there are uh, two or three kind of distinct moments of change. They were unexpected, caused a big light bulb to go on over my head. And, and so that call kind of got me thinking, you know, I've had this great career in media. I was 52. Maybe it's time to try something else. And the idea of going to the nonprofit sector was intriguing. And that began a journey that eventually led me to trickle up an organization I had never heard of. Uh, but was doing amazing work helping the poorest women uh, in the developing world have an opportunity to uh, start a business and, and make a better life for their children and their families. I'd like to understand these light bulb moments a bit. I, I think we all have them, but hindsight is obviously the way you know that usually, but is there any advice you would give to people, young people in particular, about being open to or thinking about these light bulb moments where it's completely out of left field and you're all of a sudden whoa, I never thought about that, like embrace them or be skeptical or? A couple of things. One, you know, keep your antenna up high for the signals that the universe is sending you. Now in our daily work, we all get very much trapped or, or consumed with the work in front of us. We so often uh, something comes along that's unexpected and pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there's something there. Maybe there isn't, but maybe there is. The other advice uh, I now, because of my own journey, uh, give younger people is uh, when you're about 50 years old, stop doing what you're doing and figure out something else to do. It will keep you young. It will rejuvenate you. Uh, it will be exciting. So uh, if you have that opportunity, 
try to be bold, take chances, take risks, step out of your comfort zone, mm -hmm. uh, do it if you can. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that actually those kinds of disruptions or pivots, they actually help keep us healthy and young, I think, because we're using different muscles and synapses and we're just a little bit more young and youthful and trying to navigate, whether it's moving even to a different part of the city, which I've done recently, or switching jobs or careers. When you went to Trickle Up, were you immediately in love with it or was there, did you have to be convinced? I was in love with it from the very first conversation I had with a, a headhunter and executive recruiter who called me about this opportunity. She said, uh, I want to tell you about the best kept secret in New York nonprofits. It's called Trickle Up. And they help women who are living in the absolute depths of poverty start a business as a way out of poverty. That was all I needed to hear. I said, wow, get me that meeting. Now understand, I had zero background in international development. I had never stepped foot in any of the countries that I ended up visiting uh, and was green as green could be. I think the staff probably thought the board had lost their minds. You know, so it was a, a steep learning curve. Sometimes I cringe when I look back at things that I did or said in the early years, but I got my siblings. Yeah. And, and give us a little bit of an overview, Bill, of Trickle Up. I know it's extreme poverty worldwide. I find it interesting that within any group in society, you get subdivisions. So you can have the poor, but then you have the poorest of the poor, women, disabled, all kinds of people within that subcategory or that category of poor. Tell us a little bit about Trickle Up and where it focuses. Yeah, Trickle Up uh, started in 1979, a really visionary couple, Glenn and Mildred Robbins Leap would work in international development, different human rights issues. And they began to focus on, on people that, that you correctly described or then were termed poorest of the poor. So you may be familiar with the kind of dollar a day standard for extreme poverty, which is kind of a statistical metaphor that the World Bank created. Trickle up focused on people well below that dollar a day standard, think 50 to 75 cents, a kind of poverty, frankly, none of us in the United States can even imagine. As you go out this morning and buy your $6 latte at Starbucks and thinking about people who obviously very little money, uh, savings, uh, access to resources, to education, to healthcare, to clean water. Poverty is very complex. Trickle up focused on the idea that if we could help people earn more money, save more money, other good things would happen in their lives. And it was very pioneering in the sense of, first of all, focusing on women, which today you hear every international organization talk about. But back then in the 80s, that was a very progressive idea. Mm -hmm. And also saying, you know, we believe that people even who have the least that you can imagine have enormous potential. If they just have some, some catalytic resources to help them get started, kind of a kickstart or a jumpstart. The idea was very powerful. Over the next 40 plus years, it's worked in any number of countries helped uh, hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of families, really change the trajectory of their lives and especially the lives of their children. It's now part of a global uh, consortium, a global network of similar organizations that follow what, what we call a graduation approach. So a similar methodology, but applied differently in different countries and different contexts. So, you know, it's as any organization would over time, it has changed in how it does what it does, but the, the core mission the core values, the core principles it was founded on have remained Same. constant. I think that's a great uh, indicator of strength and success, that you can stay true to your origins, uh, to your DNA over a long period of time. That has to mean that it's working. What's the name of that consortium of like-minded organizations that you are part of or they're a part of? There's actually two. One is the uh, 
uh, called the Leadership Collaborative to End Ultra Poverty, which is sort of informal. And then there is a, a more formal uh, network uh, that's housed now within the World Bank called the Partnership for Economic Inclusion, Got it. Uh, which Trickle Up is also a part of. So if you Google Partnership for Economic Inclusion, sure. you'll find it. Sure. And then the other question is this graduation model, I think I understand it instinctively, but can you talk a little bit about it? And, and in so doing, perhaps you can give us an example of one of the lives that you changed or a sampler of some sort that shows how you did more than just give someone a handout, right? You'd like a teach a man or a woman to fish kind of model, I would imagine. Exactly. So there are three basic components. One is giving people a small seed capital grant for trickle up. It was 100 to 200 dollars, which is enough capital to start a very simple business, uh, buying some goats, raising goats, uh, leasing land to do cultivation, um, getting involved in small scale food production. They were basically products that people in the community could use and would purchase, didn't require a lot of technology, didn't really require a separate place of business at that point. Very simple, but very much useful and needed in the community. Second is business training, helping women understand, okay, what is it, how do you decide what, what your product should be? Interestingly, helping people develop a very simple notion of accounting. Uh, it is a truism, whether you're a tiny trickle-up business or, or Google or a giant corporation, if you don't have accounting, you are sunk. So it's amazing how many um, lessons, things I learned about in business school in Columbia many years ago are very relevant to these simple, uh, humble businesses around the world. And the third element, uh, in some ways, the most important is organizing women into savings groups, 15 or 20 women who would meet once a week or every two weeks. They would begin to save collectively, uh, typically in a box because they're not anywhere near banks and things. Three locks on the box. So three people had to be there to open the box was sort of how you had security. Actually, four, including the person who was the box holder for the week. And then they began to lend to each other to expand their businesses for emergencies, so it was really banking on training wheels. And so that was very important financially, but it was equally important in terms of solidarity and peer support. A woman could bring her problems, whatever it is uh, in her business, often her personal life to a group of her sisters and get support and get advice. And in many of the communities where we work, women never really had the right even to come together and have a meeting like that. Uh, you know, very patriarchal societies for the most part, in some cases, very strict rules about how, how a woman could travel, what she could do. So in many ways, we were kind of pushing the boundaries, pushing some norms within communities. And it is, you know, Trickle Up's active intervention with women lasts two to three years. But the savings group, in, in most cases, continues. Uh, and that is the sign of durability and sustainability. I've, I've met Hundreds of women, some of whom are just kind of amazing. And you think, you know, if they'd been born in the United States, they might have created Toms of Maine or natural entrepreneurs, very resourceful problem solving. And, and you talk about the impact of women. They usually talk about their children. They have can go to school. They have three meals a day. Very often they have shoes before they didn't have shoes. And, and sometimes it's things that are literally almost invisible. So I was in a visit in West Africa on uh, the country of Burkina Faso, and the woman selling rice, buying rice in large quantities and then selling in small quantities. Anyway, she was able to, and in some processing. So one of the things that you can get from rice is a kind of shellac. And people typically will live in kind of homes made of mud or mud and branches and trees. And she said, now I've been able to afford to have my house shellacked. 
uh, were protected in the rainy season. I would have never in a million years have seen that, right? It was so powerful. It is interesting. Can you give us uh, uh, some sampling of the countries besides Burkina Faso where Trickle Up operates? Currently, Trickle Up works in India, uh, really in two very large states, uh, Jharkhand and Odisha, which together I think have a population of 80 or 90 million people and about a third of them living in extreme poverty. So that's bigger than most countries work very actively in Central America, in Guatemala and Mexico. Until recently, because of the kind of declining security situation, uh, Burkina Faso in West Africa was a major country. And the other area of work, which is not a, a geographic entity, is working with refugees uh, and displaced people. They're a different set of challenges, but again, the same idea, let's help people gain some skills, gain confidence, gain social solidarity to improve their economic well-being. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we have Bill Abrams, who is the retired president of Trickle Up, the International Development Organization, where he was 16 years at the head. And before that, a career executive in the news world, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, ABC News. And I got the good fortune of meeting him at first at the New York Times when we worked there together. Bill, can you talk a little bit about the private sector in poverty alleviation? Who are the heroes or the the brands you might want to shout out or that we should know, or is it all private funding and foundations? No, there are a number of corporations that are uh, important supporters, not just of Trickle Up, but other international development organizations. And in Trickle Up's case, it was mo mostly through their kind of corporate philanthropy area, but there are other companies, other examples where companies are working directly with international NGOs to build uh, supply chains, working with farmers that kind of really works that private sector uh, development uh, nexus. A Nestle or any of the- And they work with giant, you know, Fortune 500 companies to organize uh, cocoa farmers in Ghana and help them access this, become suppliers to large corporations. Um, uh, one Acre Fund is another one that I'm, I'm very keen on that's really working to help farmers gain access to finance and access to markets is, is very important. Part of what causes poverty is isolation. So it's, it's geographic distance, it's lack of roads, it's lack of good transportation to get your product from point A to a major market, and also a lack of, of relationships and networks that allow you to access the supply chains really of large corporations. A great example is Patagonia. And they were uh, uh, donors to Trickle Up for many years. Anyway, a kind of amazing story is that we're going to commit the entire corporation to the public good to really look at, right, how do our products, our manufacturing processes and so forth, our employment practices, uh, how can they go beyond simply uh, generating profits and, and serving shareholders? And yeah. was, you know, uh, very closely with the Tata Corporation, which is a huge conglomerate there. We work with the Tata Communications Division, and they were really active thought partners in our work. Uh, helpful to us in a number of ways, including in, in thinking about communications. In some companies, again, in India, uh, one of the areas where we work, there's a lot of steel, uh, several steel companies. So working with steel companies um, to help create opportunities for people and sometimes the children of our participants to get jobs. Having a job, a steady job that has, pays fair wages and has benefits is arguably the best path out of poverty for large numbers of people. Yeah, we've had as a past guest here, the president, he's now retired president of the Tata Foundation and they are really quite epic. I think the largest brand in India that own many brands that we all know globally, including 
Land Rover, but they have really done incredible things there. It's really a, a, a good shout out for them, Bill. So with the private sector or actually with governments, I'm, I'm just wondering about the governance question. Like when you go into some of these countries are fraught, right? So mm-hmm. how does a nonprofit navigate all of that without being either coerced or, or I don't know, held hostage for certain things? That's a really interesting question. And for most of TrickleUp's history, we said we're going to work with grassroots, local, what we would think of as social service agencies in the U.S. context, and try to avoid governments because of all those issues of politics and pressure and corruption and so on, especially as a U.S. uh, entity. And that worked pretty well. But as we really started to wrestle with the question of scale, how do we take what we know uh, which is very powerful, but we can, we only had the funds to kind of help 20, 30, 50,000 people in a year. And there are uh, three to 400 million people on the planet who live at this very extreme level of poverty that I'm talking about. So ultimately it does come down to one's ability to work with governments um, as trickle up has done at the, the state level uh, in India, at the local level in Guatemala, because that's really where the decision-making locus is. And uh, the most important thing, I think, is you've got to demonstrate that what you do works. Mm-hmm. Governments, whatever our cynicism about them, uh, the good ones do care about uh, poverty. And step one, you've got to have something that works, something that's different from what they're already doing and is supported by solid evidence. And you have to build relationships. And, and that takes time. Um, and sometimes in governments where people rotate and things that can, that can take a step backwards before you can take another step forward. Uh, it's really learning how does their business work? What are their incentives? What are their procedures? How do they do budgeting? And you really have to understand their needs just as they have to understand yours because you are different types of organizations, different cultures. Requi- process that requires patience and persistence, but there are just in the graduation uh, community that I talk about. The work where Trickle Up and our partners are doing is now in, I think, about 50 different countries, uh, including some major scale up in places like Ethiopia and Pakistan. So um, with time and persistence and, and, mm-hmm. and good impact, most importantly, uh, it can work. What's the best way to be in touch with Trickle Up if someone's interested in supporting them? Uh, go to the website, yep. trickleup.org. You'll find a donate page. You'll find links to actual humans you can write to. Uh, It's a small organization. They're very responsive um, and they do great work. So it'd be wonderful if people even just to go to the website and check them out. Okay. And then for you, is it LinkedIn? What's the best way to be in touch with Bill Abrams? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. That's uh, William Abrams. uh, Or my email is abramsw118 at gmail.com. A-B-R-A-M-S-W-118 at gmail.com. Happy to hear from people. Terrific. You're, you were working for all these years with an international organization, uh, development agency, and before that you were working with incredibly globally oriented news gathering organizations. What do you say to detractors in the U.S. who would say, mm, that's their issue, not mine, or we have problems of our own here, or I just don't feel a need to help there? What's, what's the case for getting Western or U.S. supporters involved with an organization like Trickle Up? Two things that have been very uh, vivid in the past couple of years are uh, COVID and climate change. They are global. They don't understand. They don't know borders, right? So you have to th- understand why it is necessary to think and act globally. 
and likewise, you know, poverty at one level is simply uh, who you are as a human being and what your values are. And is it important to help people who have less privilege, less power than you do? So that's kind of a personal choice that you've come to through your religion or your upbringing. If you look at it in terms of the uh, immigration issues at the border, why are people making these dangerous journeys from Guatemala? I met many families in Guatemala, the, the woman is there, her kids are there, the husband, and if there's a teenage male, they're gone. Yeah. They've gone to the United States to, to find work. Nobody does that uh, uh, for fun. You know, the, uh, people get ripped off and exploited, and the work here is, is also difficult. So people do it out of the need as a way to escape poverty. You can't make, help make the world a better place, then it's hard to keep people from wanting to come to a place that they perceive as better. So. Um, and then talk a little bit, Bill, about your journalism career. How, how did you both find your way into it? And then why did you choose to leave it? Just, it wasn't as impulsive, I think, as you said at the opening, you, you must have had some sort of like been there, done that kind of moment. I got into journalism because it was in the seventh grade, my mother recognized that I did not have any particular athletic ability. My two older brothers were very good athletes. <laughs> and uh, being a very protective mom said, why don't you go get on the school newspaper? You might enjoy that. She was getting me out of harm's way. Uh, that was correct. And I fell in love with journalism literally when I was 13, editor of my high school newspaper, my college newspaper. Uh, so that was <clears throat> a calling for many years. I had, you know, the privilege of working with amazing people, having, you know, every story is interesting. Some of them also were, were very important. So I was really lucky. And then, uh, you know, it just came a point where, when I left the Times, I'm sure I could have found another job in media. But yes, I was ready for a different challenge uh, and, and it sort of came along and it just felt right. You know, it was kind of that simple. It started, with, it wasn't an impulse because it spoke to something more deep yeah. in me. Yeah. And uh, not just the need for change, but the need to make a very positive difference uh, in the lives of others. I've been very privileged in my life. And this was a moment I could, could put my talents to work for the benefit of other people. Yeah. I often say that um, careers always make sense in the rearview mirror, right? It doesn't. Well said, yes. <laughs> you didn't set out at 13 to become who you are today, but here you are and you're, it all sounds perfect to me. I also think that the constant I see in your career and in you, and then frankly, everyone we've had on this program in our two years and seven seasons is service. We're all here to serve a higher purpose in ourselves. And I think that that's I think that's the most gratifying thing as I look back on my career. And when I look at people who are successful, who the queen herself, who were mourning this week was the epitome of service. And so I see that in you as well. Um, and I challenge people all the time, young people to think about that higher purpose and what it is for them and how they're going to serve. So would you agree with that? I agree a hundred percent. And no matter what people do, if you have a conventional corporate job, whatever it is, uh, you can find a way. Uh, to be of service as a volunteer, as a donor, uh, as an advocate. So I feel people who don't have that as some component in their lives uh, aren't living a full, complete life, right? Yeah. They're also missing an opportunity um, themselves for satisfaction and, and meaning in, in life. So Interesting, I have some of those things that sort of, well, I'll do that when I'm 30 or I'll do that when I'm 40 or I'll do that when I'm 52. Yeah. Do it now. I've had those 60 year olds who seek me out because of this podcast and my book and my work, um, because they have had the business success, the family success, and they're in what they see as the, you know, the latter half or a third of their lives. And they're, 
they're somehow missing something. And it usually gets back to that, like that higher purpose. Why are you on this planet? What's the difference you're going to make? So it's fun to help them. It's an honor and a privilege to help them sort of figure that one out. Do you have any reflections on um, the state of journalism now as compared to when you entered it? Wow. We have another hour or two. <laughs> on the one hand, I mourn the passing of many great uh, metropolitan newspapers. Uh, there are a few that uh, left. The Times is certainly one, the Wall Street Journal. I grew up on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which usually was on the list of 10 best papers. Yeah. It's not a shadow of its former self. However, uh, new forms are emerging all the time. So the innovation, we're seeing, you know, uh, organizations that was public. So a whole new form, a whole new way of doing journalism and then kind of sharing it, syndicating it with different distribution points. You know, amazing, interesting stuff happening on the web. You know, it's easy for old timers like me to say, oh, whoa, the media is dead. Journalism, serious journalism is dead. It's not. It's just sh uh, changing. And it's important for people, if you care about the news, uh, to kind of use these different forms, learn, learn about them. Uh, make them part of your daily media diet. I mean, I can't, you know, I read the New York Times in print every day. And if I have to miss it, I feel like I've left the house without having brushed my teeth. But I also have a number of things that I uh, learn from online. And, and it's exciting. The journalism is as good as you would find any major paper. So our final question for you is around historic preservation. For 30 years lived in the West Village, you are now, a, what do you say, board member or trustee at uh, Village Preservation? Yes. So Village Preservation, which for a long time was known as the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, uh, it's been around a long time and does amazing work to protect uh, the architectural and historic heritage of this amazing area, which probably has more units of history per square meter than any place maybe outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, so they do research, amazing research. Uh, if you go to their website, villagepreservation.org, you will see cornucopia of fascinating information about this area and the people who populated it. They do education. Uh, we have a program, for example, on African-American history in the village that's used in schools. I think 3,000 students uh, took advantage of it last year. And then we do advocacy to work with the City Landmarks Commission to try to protect uh, areas that have been designated as historic districts. Most of the village, Soho and, and Noho, are in a historic protected area. So mm -hmm. We don't have any power, but we have uh, an influential voice. After I retired and I thought, well, I've got some time and I'm, I'm good at sort of board work and I've been a fan of village preservation forever. So I called up Andrew Berman, the executive director. And so anyway, I joined the board and, and you know, part of it was for me uh, through trickle up, I'd been to all kinds of villages around the world. And I said, now it's time to learn more about the village that I live in. <laughs> I love it. And I think now in particular, as the pressures on the city's leadership to rejuvenate the economy, which goes in the wrong direction, can just kind of open the door to large-scale development, reduction in the kind of good safeguards uh, against overdevelopment. So it's important now that we are here to protect this, this remarkable neighborhood. To that end, my husband, Harlan Bratcher, founded the Jackson Square Alliance uh, oh. building. And the preservation, village preservation has always been a great collaborator there, as frankly have our elected officials, because I think they all appreciate that we need a collaborative effort to keep these places not only vibrant, but actually inclusive, educational. So it's, it's I think it's really a wonderful organization for us to have in New York. and I. 
I wish that for any city that really wants to not only celebrate its past, but it should ensure a sustainable future. So kudos to them for having you on their board. Your use of the word collaboration in many ways is kind of a theme of this conversation. Trickle up collaborating with peers around the world as well as, well as with local agencies to address this gigantic complicated problem called global poverty. Uh, the private sector and the public sector actors finding that common ground, learning how to talk to each other, understand each other in order to work together. Easy to get kind of trapped in your own organization, but uh, you know, so many things require be better if different entities can actually learn to collaborate. The young people need to step up. I always say nobody has cornered the market on good ideas. And young people sometimes have the most interesting of perspectives. And so I like to have fun challenging younger people to put their hands up, share their ideas and roll up their sleeves as well, right? So Bill Abrams, I wanna thank you so much for joining us here today on The Caring Economy. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill and I first worked together at the New York Times back in the early 2000s. He is the past president for 16 plus years at Trickle Up, the very successful, very worthy international anti-poverty organization, as well as a career executive in journalism at the New York Times, ABC News, and the Wall Street Journal. Bill, I'll let you have the last word. Words of wisdom, advice. I think what you're doing with this podcast, and after you invited me, I went back and listened to a couple of them, and they're all stimulating. Uh, so you always want to be kind of challenging your thinking, and what better way than by having access to a lot of the very accomplished, distinguished people you have on this podcast. So, uh, uh, and you didn't pay me to say that, but... <laughs> Yeah. And it's how you serve. I always, uh, the quote attributed Churchill that we, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And you certainly embody that. So thank you again, Bill Abrams. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Toby. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.